Well, happy Labor Day. And uh, to you all who are live streaming, uh, maybe even around the world, it's not Labor Day for you, but thanks for joining with us today. It's always a privilege for me to share with my home church, Cornerstone. And I'm really excited about this psalm series as well. It's been uh, a great time to engage with, you know, there's something so authentic about the, the, the rawness of emotion that we see expressed in the Psalms. It's a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm hoping that Pastor Terry might consider having another series like this next summer because there's 150 Psalms. So in a sense, we've barely scratched the surface. But the Psalm today is really significant. Uh, and you'll notice in your handout, Psalm 22, I've entitled, When God Seems Far Away. And I don't know if that's something that you can identify with that you felt before or maybe are feeling right now. This was a psalm of David. And it's a powerful lament, but also concludes with a great celebration of praise. And so it takes us on a journey. And as part of the ministry of Jews for Jesus for now 40 years, this psalm, like many others, is really significant for its prophetic content. Did you know that there are over 300 uh, passages in the Hebrew Bible that specifically predict something of the nature of the Messiah and his coming? And so this one in particular I use on a regular basis as do all of my colleagues because it is so explicit about one particular aspect of the life of Jesus, namely the crucifixion and the scenes surrounding it. And so what I want to do today is I want to take us through that predictive nature of the psalm. And then I want us to go where the experiences of David and the experiences of Christ, both in lament and in celebration, take us so that we can engage with those very truths that helped both David and his greater son, Jesus. And there are, the reason why I called it When God Seems Far Away is that there are three stanzas to this song, this psalm, and each one begins with this sense that God himself feels to the psalmist, to David, and to the Lord at that time far away. So the first psalm is, kind of, the first stanza rather, is kind of like this idea of faith in the midst of doubt. Oftentimes we see doubt as an enemy of faith, but we'll see that's not the case. David starts out, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. 
Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. There's an experience that David is having here. We don't exactly know what in the biography of his life this aligns up with. A couple of weeks ago, Lewis told us about a time when David was actually kidnapped by the Philistines and actually had to feign madness you know, to get away. Or perhaps it was during a time when his own son had betrayed him and he had to run, flee for his life. Or, or maybe when younger King Saul was seeing him as a threat to the throne and attacked him and he had to run away. Whatever the experience was, David has this raging sense of doubt. But in the midst of it, having written 1,000 years this psalm before Jesus ever came, I want you to see how he anticipated and actually pictured for us the crucifixion scene. The very first phrase must have jumped out at you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a quote, a direct quote from the Gospel of Matthew and tells us exactly about what Jesus was feeling when he was on the cross. We can see this, for example, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. This is often called the fourth word on the cross. It says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now that's uh, Aramaic, which is the, a dialect of the Hebrew language spoken in Jesus' day. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is uttering the same words that David wrote the very first verse of Psalm 22 1,000 years earlier. And then look down in verse 8. We can see again David painting a scene, an experience that he had with those who were in opposition to him. And this is likewise in Matthew 27, verses 39 and 43, the scene that Jesus experienced while he hung on the cross. It says, and those who passed by blasphemed him, that is Jesus, wagging their heads, saying, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. There are five of these kind of direct reflections from David that were part of the crucifixion scene, demonstrating the supernatural prophetic nature of God's word. And I remember once, meeting with a Jewish attorney who had shown some interest in understanding who Jesus was, and so I recommended that he read the Gospel of Matthew, and we'd get together and talk about it. And one day, he came in, we sat down at the coffee, for coffee, and he said, David, now I know that Jesus can't be the Messiah. And I said, oh, really, why is that? He said, because when he was hanging on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what kind of a Messiah ever says something like that? <laughs> well, you can imagine how excited I was to be able to turn in the Bible to the pages of Psalm 22 and show him that this was predicted 
And, you know, I could see the wheels turning, right, you know? And, uh, you know, it's like Jesus was singing the first bars of a well-known hymn when he said that on the cross, drawing all of our attention to the whole psalm, that this was predicted. But the lawyer sat there, and finally he says, well, you know, the more I think about it, as you say that, I think the disciples probably just wrote this and put it in his mouth and that Jesus never even said it. I said, wait a minute, dude. On the one hand, you're saying that by saying it, he disqualified himself as the Messiah. And within a moment, you're telling me that he never even said it. So which is it? You know, the capacity for the human heart to disbelieve is amazing. And yet it's here. And I think that God has given us his word so that we can see and identify with and take comfort in the reality of what God has for us. Let's read on to the second one, the second uh, stanza, which similarly begins with this idea of God feeling far away. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David here is accessing a time in his life where he was suffering great physical pain as well. And in order for him to explain it to us, he actually resorts to this poetic language, you know, this menagerie of animals, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. You know, and, and really, have you ever watched on like Discovery Channel or, you know, National Geographic where there's this film of an, uh, an innocent animal, a defenseless animal being attacked either by a pack of wolves or or a lion, you know, there's this sense of tension as the animal is being stalked, and then when it attacks, it's horrifying sometimes to watch it being literally ripped apart, and David is saying that's how he's feeling here. But the whole stanza is a powerful description of a crucifixion scene in very specific terms that occurred, that was written first before Roman execution uh, a crucifixion was ever even invented, ever even imagined or thought of. So there's predictive power in this that we can see. For example, in quoting verse 18 of this, it says in Matthew 27, verse 35 about Jesus, then they crucified him and divided his gar garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The prophet is none other than David, who wrote Psalm 22, and that's what we're seeing here. But as you read the whole characterization of this scene and the suffering, the physical pain, my bones are out of joint. My heart melts like wax in me. You can sense, can't you, the crucifixion scene itself. And the most powerful, obvious correlation is in verse 16. Do you see it? 
They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, this is such a startling image of what happens in crucifixion that it has become quite controversial among the rabbis who have felt necessary to try and figure out a way to describe this away. And they do so using a Hebrew text. Some have heard of this. It's called the Masoretic text. And in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew reads, not they pierced, but like a lion. And I want to show you those Hebrew words. And this may be a little bit of cookies on the top shelf, but bear with me because you have the top word. And by the way, we read Hebrew from right to left rather than from left to right. And you would say, but isn't that backwards? And I would say, we were doing that along before you were reading the other way, right? <laughs> so now the top word is pronounced kari. And it actually means like a lion, not pierced. The bottom word is karu, which means pierced. Okay. Now, what's the difference? You see those two letters in red? That's the difference. The top one is called a yud. And when a scribe makes that letter, it's like a backward apostrophe. But if he was going to make the bottom letter, karu, that's a, called a vuv. And if he made a mistake or just didn't continue the stem of the backward apostrophe all the way down, it changes the very meaning of the word. Do you see that? And so the Masoretic text is the only one, the one on the top, that says, like a lion. But in the 20th century, <laughs> we discovered something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They predate the Masoretic text, and guess which word it is in Psalm 22? It's karu. It's they pierced. Not only that, but in 400 BC in Alexandria, Egypt, there was a group of 400 rabbis that got together to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, which was the common language of the day. This is called the Septuagint. And what word do you think those 400 rabbis chose to translate this word into Greek? They chose the Greek word pierced. And so we can see that despite the controversy, the evidence portrays that this is actually what David wrote. They pierced my hands and my feet. I remember once I was uh, meeting on a regular basis with an Israeli named Asaf. We became very good friends and we would meet once a week to go step by step through all of the prophecies from the Hebrew Bible that predicted the coming of Jesus. And uh, so you can imagine as we got to Psalm 22, I really wanted to bone up on all the Hebrew arguments here because Asaf spoke Hebrew as his first language. So I did, and I was all ready with what I just shared with you, maybe a little bit more. And as we started to read the Psalm, he in Hebrew and I in English, um, Asaf in his thick Israeli accent was saying, wow, wow, David, wow. <laughs> So we're getting finally to the verse 16, and I'm starting to explain the difference between the Hebrew words. He had the, like a lion, and I was showing him how it could be pierced, and he says, David, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Pierced or like a lion. This is a picture of Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew way to say Jesus. 
And wouldn't you know that not long after that, Asaf prayed with me to receive Jesus as his Messiah. And I had the privilege of baptizing him in the Mediterranean Sea. Hallelujah. Great is the mystery of unbelief, but great is the mystery of faith, which is a gift from God. Now we move on to the third stanza in this psalm where we begin to take the shift from the lament to the praise. And you'll see it happen here. But again, anticipating not only Jesus in his suffering, but Jesus in his triumph. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. There's that refrain. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised the abhorred, the, the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. What started out as this lament, what began in, even in this phrase, a mournful be not far from me, somehow turns to end with this exaltation, this hymn of victory, for that's what it is. Faith leads us to this kind of victorious exaltation. And it's not just for the psalmist. It's not just for David. It's for a whole group of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is the vision of the future. This is the intent of God. And it concludes with the basis upon which this hopefulness was established. When David says, he has done it. Does that sound like something that Jesus said in the crucifixion scene? Is it not just like his last words when he said, it is finished, and he offered up his spirit? A triumphal declaration that God has it all under control. And the invitation to each and every one of us is to join with him and join the chorus. I want to just reflect a little bit on how these truths apply to us. Let's join this chorus. From the beginning of time when God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, God has been seeking worshipers 
Jesus said that to the woman at the well. God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus, when he declared on the cross, it is finished, what he was saying is, I've accomplished through my death forgiveness for all who would be able to see me and say, Jesus is Lord. And I hope that if you haven't yet said that, today will be the day. Because when we do, we get to see something that our world around us so desperately needs to see. We are living in a time of tremendous divisiveness, are we not? People are, whether it be on social media or in Berkeley or all across our country, there is this kind of division and racism that God allows no place for. You cannot claim that these attitudes that are being expressed reflect anything of the, the purpose of God in Jesus. He died on the cross to heal those things. All around the world we see things that make us upset, fearful. What's going on in North Korea and where will it lead? But the vision of God is that in the end, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be together now, but most importantly around the throne and in Revelation, we see this amazing picture of people, young, old, rich, poor. There's no economic divide that makes a difference. All colors, all nations, you know, Israelis and Palestinians, Arabs and Jews, shoulder to shoulder, singing this song, and to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever, amen. Wow, what a vision. Now this will bring hope even in the midst of the times like we are in today because we know that God declares the end from the beginning, that he will do it. Even as he did it with Jesus on the cross, he will do this as well. And we look for and we long for that day and we speak into that day and we engage in every opportunity to demonstrate God's heart in a world that needs to see. Join the chorus, join the chorus. Secondly, as David and as Jesus learned to say, we need to be able to say, but you, O Lord. And you see it in the text of the psalm, especially in the first stanza, where David says, you know, I am just a wreck. I feel awful. I feel abandoned. Why have you forsaken me? People are wagging their head. They're saying, how's that? God thing working out for you, huh? Or for us today, how's that Jesus thing working out for you? Look at you, look at what's going on in your life. Where is your God now, huh? And we can feel that. We can feel trampled underfoot, like with the second stanza, all the menagerie of animals. We can feel torn up. Feelings of abandonment, oh man. I know something about that, and maybe you do too. It could be a parent, a spouse, a child, best friend. When that happens, where do you go? You feel crushed. First of all, we need to say, but you, O Lord. David says, I am a worm and not a man, but you, O Lord, are holy. 
I feel lousy like I've been abandoned by God, but you didn't abandon my forefathers. They trusted in you and weren't ashamed. And so I know I can trust in you just the same way. And we, you know, get our eyes on our problems and the antidote that inspires faith to get through is to engage with who God is. We don't take the moment of our suffering to renegotiate our faith. Have you seen that happen? It's easy to follow God when everything's going well, but the difficult thing is to be faithful to him, to believe and trust him when everything's falling apart. Have you been there? Are you there now? Learn to say, but you, O Lord, you, O Lord, think about who he is, whom you know him to be. Don't start renegotiating that in the time of trouble. Reflect on God as you know him to be, as his word tells us he is, and as the hopeful future portends for everyone who's joined this chorus. But you, Lord, maybe right now we need to say that, but you, Lord. There are times when I've come to Cornerstone and I've felt just knocked down and I hear Pastor Terry or Pastor Lewis saying, you done good. <laughs> you came to church even if you didn't feel like it, you're here. And I, I appreciate that. And that's the moment where I'm led to that point where, yeah, I, I don't really feel that good about being here, but you, oh Lord, but you. And that helps us in the end to make our suffering count. You know, there's so much suffering in the world Every country, every community has suffering. And you listen to some of these stories of people, you know, maybe down in South Texas or in areas where human trafficking is rife, and you, it's like, it's heartbreaking. And then whatever we're going through is overwhelming to us, and we have people around us who don't exactly help us think about God, but we're suffering, and in the midst of it, we don't want it, right? Who, who you know, you say, people say, well, you're a martyr. Well, I'd rather not be a martyr. You know, if I'm out on the streets and somebody, you know, because I'm a Jew for Jesus, slaps at me or says some abusive phrase, I don't take any pleasure in that. Whatever experience of suffering at one level or another it can make a difference. It can count for God, even if we don't want it. But that's okay, David didn't want it. Remember Jesus in the garden? <laughs> he was suffering, and he knew what he was about to experience, not just the psychic suffering that caused him to sweat drops of blood, the stress was so great, but the suffering that was gonna come through the beatings and the crucifixion. And so what did he say? Honestly, from the depths of his soul, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink it. I don't want to have to go through it. Please, God. That's the very son of God who said that. So that's okay. If you're right there and you're saying, hey, look, I don't want this. You're in good company. But look at what Paul said when he kind of reflected 
on the sufferings of Jesus and how we actually can participate with them in a way that causes them to have even far greater meaning because of that. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, he says, For as the sufferings of Christ, whether it be the feelings of abandonment, the physical struggle. I had a friend who told me that she's gone through cancer two times, and it was actually the second time and the second experience of having to go through chemo that she just really hit rock bottom. And this verse jumped out at her in the midst of her physical suffering. Suffering. Jesus suffered. As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, that is the comfort, that encircling, enveloping sense of God's presence, his love, his mercy, his grace, that abounds. And so whatever you're going through right now, abandonment, pain, loss, feelings of failure, inadequacy, Jesus experienced everything and yet without sin. We're not going to experience it without sin, but we can make this suffering count when we, first of all, identify our suffering with the sufferings of Christ. Ground that suffering, that pain, that feeling at the foot of the cross of Jesus who lived a life that we could not live and died a death that we deserve so that we could, through our sorrows, identify with him and experience the consolation, the comfort, the love, the grace. God wants to do that for each and every one of us if we access that and make it count. And we have this capacity and we need to access it. I know that the dark times that I've been through have done a work in me that I don't think could have occurred apart from those things. Even though I didn't want them, I'd prefer another path. God, why don't you just make this a, an elective rather than a required course in your curriculum, right? But when we do that, what does he do? Empathy, right? You might not be able to be freed initially from whatever you're enduring, but the empathy that comes for others who are suffering. There's an old phrase that was used by uh, an organization that really does a lot of caring for people who are going through pain. And it was, let my heart break with the things that break the heart of God. That happens when you endure and ground your suffering at the foot of the cross. He, he gives a large space. He enlarges our capacity to care for those who are suffering as well. And then, in a powerful way, he also allows us to join in this witness of the chorus for others who are suffering. There are lots of people who are suffering without the consolation of Christ, and they watch. How, how are you able to do this? I would just completely fall apart. And then you say, Jesus suffered too, and he helps me. And so while that person hasn't seen the face of Jesus, they look at you and they see his face in yours. Make it count. God wants to help us. And he will help us. Praise his name. We may feel that he's far away, but he is just as close 
as a word uttered in prayer. So we're going to pray right now. And after that, the ushers are going to come and receive today's offering. The band will come and close us out with a great song. Let's pray. Lord, we are struck by how supernatural your word is that a thousand years before Jesus, his crucifixion was predicted in such a visual and just amazing way. But more than that, Lord, that as you endured that which was predicted, you opened a pathway for us who have our own struggles to find a community of worshipers to share in the hopeful future, keeping our eyes off of our problems and saying, but you, Lord, and then giving us a way that through the suffering that none of us really signs up for, nevertheless, an opportunity to grow, to experience your grace in ways that we never would have otherwise, and to be part of this great, testimony to others who can see in our face the face of Jesus. Oh Lord, let it be in his name. Amen.